0: We're going to start at verse 18 and we're going to read through verse 23 today as we continue to explore uh, the efforts of the preacher of Ecclesiastes who desires to see for himself with his own eyes whether happiness can be found in worldly means. Can it be found apart from God or can it only be found in the one who created us? So we are in chapter 2 and we're beginning with verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, is vanity the preacher's attitude toward his labor undergoes a radical change over the course of ecclesiastes chapter two we had previously read in verse 10 as the preacher was giving possessions and and um, and pleasure a try we read in verse 10 whatever my eyes desired i did not keep from them i kept my heart from no pleasure for my, heart found, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. So in verse 10, what's his attitude towards work there? His attitude is positive. He found pleasure in his work. He was grateful to be able to work hard and to enjoy the things that, that came as a result from his efforts. So in the beginning, in the middle of the chapter of Ecclesiastes here, work is seen as a good thing. <coughs> the Hebrew for a toil here, the term that is used is and it generally refers to work or effort expended to accomplish a task. It can also be simply translated as trouble. Isn't that funny? In the Hebrew this word can be translated as trouble and that's not actually too far from the range of definitions that we have in our English word for work. If someone does something special for you that took a lot of effort you might very well say something like, oh thank you but you didn't have to go to all the trouble for that, right? So sometimes we equate trouble and work together as well. And today in our passage of Scripture, as chapter 2 unfolds, we're going to see that, that, tr- that work is not the answer for life's questions. Toil and, and struggle and, and effort is not what solves the problems of the heart. In fact, they can bring us great trouble. And so we see in Ecclesiastes 2.11, the very next verse, after he's just declared that toil is pleasurable to him, it is wonderful for him to enjoy the fruits of his labor, he goes on to say in verse 11, Then I considered, see that word? Then I considered, that means he reflects on the deeper truths of what he's experienced in life. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So we see a great change of mind here between verses 10 and verse 11. Verse 11. Whatever value the preacher saw in his toil began to disappear when he took the time to really consider the value and the meaning of his work. He might have been able to experience some temporary pleasure through his efforts as a result of the fruit of his labor, but nothing that truly made a lasting difference, nothing that got him any closer to answering those big picture questions that haunt his mind and plague his heart. He had put in great amounts of effort, but had really not gained anything substantial or permanent from all that effort. So regardless of the fact that his labors had proved useful and even enjoyable at times, a deeper look causes the preacher to see them as meaningless. His attitude toward his toil continues this trend downward in verse 18, which we just read a few moments ago. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. The meaninglessness of labor not only makes it difficult for the preacher to enjoy his labor, it eventually causes him to view labor as a negative to such a degree that he begins to hate his labor. He begins to loathe the hard work of life. Now, I don't want you to raise your hand here, just raise it silently in your heart, that little tiny heart, in your hand in your heart. If you have, at one point or another, hated your job, if you have, at one point or another, just loathe getting up and going to the work, that you have set aside. For, I caution you not to raise your hands because I know some of you work for each other in here so I don't want to bring strife and heartache into the workplace here so don't raise your hands so we can see it. But I think that most of us have found some reasons to truly resent the jobs that we spend so much of our time laboring at. You might have experienced low pay for the work that you were doing. You might have experienced very poor working conditions. Obnoxious coworkers might be driving you crazy at your job. There might be little chance of advancement there. There might be few opportunities to enact change and improvement. You've got big ideas, but nobody is listening to you. It might be monotonous to continue to do the same things over and over and over again just so that little piece of paper will come to your mail at the end of the week or the pay period. The commute, maybe it's not the job itself, but the torture of just getting to your job is wearing you so thin that the joy of life feels like it's just draining out of you. All the reasons that have probably at one time or another caused you to turn to your spouse and declare in your best Old Testament voice, this job is vanity. We've all been there before, I think. Now the preacher becomes disheartened by his labor and his toil, but it's not because of the commute, it's not because of the hours, the sweat that he's constantly wiping from his brow, no. These are the superficial aspects of our labors that we tend to focus on and complain about. But the preacher hates his labor because of the big picture question that he's been wrestling with since the beginning. So what? What's the point? How can I find contentment in life? Don't forget, that's what Solomon's ultimate goal is in writing this book. He's not here just to punch in and punch out. He wants purpose. He wants meaning. There is a huge portion of the world that we live in today that is content to just live for these brief little moments and to move from one temporary experience to the next, treating each new day like a disposable, single-serving dose of thrills and entertainment. But the preacher sees emptiness in that, and I hope that we are beginning to see emptiness in that as well as we work through this book together. He wants permanence. He wants significance. Eternity is in his heart and he doesn't know what to do with it. He wants to find his place in the world and leave his mark. But there's an unescapable reality that is haunting the preacher that is never too far away from his conscience. Though he seems to be able to avoid it in small bursts, he always finds it creeping back into his mind. How is he supposed to find meaning and purpose in his work if all that he works to if all the efforts that he puts into gaining these spoils of of labor will one day fall into the hands of someone else. Remember the, the great equalizer that we talked about last week in verses 12 through 17. It is still fresh in the preacher's mind as he moves into these next set of verses. The great equalizer is death. The final fate that affects every single man. The preacher can gain all the wisdom in the world It wouldn't really do him any good if all that wisdom cannot protect him from that last curtain call. The fool and the wise die just the same. They all have to contend with their own mortality. That looming, unavoidable reality is enough to make a person think differently about a lot of things in life, particularly about his labors. The preacher can labor and toil without end and put all of his efforts into working his way into better financial security, working his way into greater economic freedom. But that freedom has its limits. The security that he earns won't protect him from the final end to all human life. So how secure is it? We all die. And when a person dies, what happens to all that he has worked so hard to gain? He says in verse 18, I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. One day a good portion of the fruit of your labor will likely be inherited by someone else who will reap the rewards of your hard work. And even if you have a will or a trust, you won't really be able to control those resources anymore. You won't be here. They will have outlived The reach of your influence. If you uh, are a brother or a sister who really takes great comfort in being in control of your life, if you're organized and ordered and you like to know exactly what's coming next, then this book of Ecclesiastes is likely to increase your blood pressure significantly. It teaches us again and again how little control we actually have over ourselves. How many of you would admit that you're like that, that you, you don't like being caught off guard by anything? There's a way you like things being done, and you find a great deal of your peace in making sure it's done the way you want it to be done. If that's you, you want to know what's ahead. You want to set your budget and make your plans. You want to know the reasons why things are done the way they are. You want to set it all up the way that it's pictured in your head. And if that's you, then you're constantly battling against the same hard realities that Solomon is battling against here. You simply don't have the kind of control your heart so desperately longs for. And there's frustration in that, isn't there? You're not able to ensure and guarantee what's going to happen next. And that is the case with the fruit of man's labors as well. If you can relate to that, then you might want to work up the courage this morning to put your compulsion to control things under the microscope the spiritual microscope of Scripture. Ask yourself, how much does this tendency in me, how much does this cause me to resist the will of the Almighty God whose sovereign ways are often different than my own ways? If you get a heavy portion of your peace and satisfaction from being able to have control over your life, Understand that that same tendency you have to be in control may very well make it difficult for you to embrace the biblical truth that there is only one God who is truly in control. And that's not to say that it's wrong if you're an organized and ordered person. The Lord has blessed this world with people who think that way. Being a planner is not a sin. There are tremendous gifts in, in being prepared and thinking ahead, in living strategically and efficiently, in trying to make the most of your time. Administrative giftedness is even sometimes applied supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 28. It says, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, and then gifts, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And it goes on to list all these spiritual gifts that have built the church up over the ages. So, administrating is one of the gifts that the Holy Spirit can bless you with. But taking charge of your life can only get you so far. And sometimes it can keep you from getting to where you need to be. If God is sovereign, friends, and He is, then there will be a time when your neat little list of things that you've got to accomplish today, God's going to look at it, He's going to crumple it up, He's going to throw it in the garbage, and He's going to totally rewrite your schedule. If God is sovereign, and mark my words, God is sovereign, then there will be times when following the command of your Savior is going to mean stepping out on faith going someplace you're not aware of, doing something completely new, without an itinerary, without a detailed map of where you're going or where you're going to end up, following the Lord God means walking in faith and knowing though that you might not be in control, He always is. If God is sovereign, and I promise you that He is, there will be times when you feel like you have to be the one solving the problem. You have to be the one saving the day when God is calling you to wait and watch while He Himself solves the problem, completely independent of your efforts. This is life in faith. This is life as a Christian, knowing that the Lord God is good and He alone is the one who is in control. Order is a beautiful thing. We should seek to live ordered, well thought out lives. But we must also come to terms with the fact that all of our logical ordering and planning and efforts to control the variables in our lives are extremely limited by our human intellect. They're extremely limited by our short-sighted view of the future and our personal power, which really looks like weakness compared to the power of the living God. So the preacher here is concerned that the hard work that he's putting into building and gaining and establishing and preparing could one day fall into the hands of a fool. And all of his toil will have been for nothing. And it should be fairly obvious to us that Solomon did not have his own son, Rehoboam, in mind. Because Solomon still writes this book as king of Israel. Rehoboam has not taken the throne yet. But oh, the irony of how some of this anticipated frustration actually comes to pass in real life. Solomon was Israel's wisest king, but he is succeeded by a son, Rehoboam, who... If you watch his actions and the ways that he begins in his rule, it seems like he was determined to prove that divine wisdom is not hereditary. He was advised at the beginning of his reign after his father had passed away and he began to rule in Israel. He was advised by the elder men who had also advised his father that it would probably be a good time now to back off on some of the heavy taxes that his father had levied, that the people were crying out for some relief Solomon had accomplished great and amazing things, but that came at a cost. And the people were tired of paying for so many civic projects. And so they advised him, let's let's lessen the load on the people. Let's, Let's decrease the demands on the populace. But there were other voices, other voices whispering into Rehoboam's ears. His younger friends advised him to go in the complete opposite direction, that the elders of wisdom told him to go. They said, no, you've got to establish your power here and now. Show them who's in charge. Increase their taxes. Make the burden heavier so that they will respect you. Rehoboam foolishly followed the advice of his peers. And rather than winning their affection, he embittered the people to the throne. And it almost seemed like no time at all before this wonderful, amazing, Nation that had been built up under the leadership of David and Solomon and all of Solomon's wisdom fractured. And the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, became split along a common line. And in the south, you have the southern kingdom of Judah with Judah and Benjamin. And in the north, the rest of the tribes declared that they were going to have their own king. Can you imagine? Solomon, if, if he was not in the glory of heaven enjoying better and more wonderful things, how he would have rolled over in his grave to see what had become of all the hard work that he put into this kingdom, into making it the great place that it was. Friends, in many ways, control is a mirage. You are not the only person living on planet Earth, so even if you do all the right things and keep things just how you want them, someone else is going to come along who likes them completely different, and you're going to have to contend with that. How will you face that opposition? And this really goes beyond the narrow boundaries of what one might leave one day as an inheritance to their sons. There are many things that you might work at that somebody else might pick up on and take in a different direction than you intended, even while you're still alive. What you work so hard for can be taken away in this world while you're still conscious. It's not all that uncommon for someone else to grab what you've started and to finish it in a way you don't like. Or to simply reap the benefits and the rewards of the hard work that you put in at the ground level and you don't ever actually see the benefits that they're seeing from what you did. I knew a, a kid at Cal Poly, and whoever would listen, he would tell this story. He wasn't uh, from a very wealthy family, but he had a grandfather who was an inventor. And he says, my grandfather invented the little bumps that go in between the lanes on the road. When I was a, when, when, uh, Way before I was born, when my, my, my dad was a kid, he remembers his father working in the garage trying to develop... This, this device to help people know not to wander into one lane from the other. And he invented it and it was you know he thought he was gonna save countless lives and somebody else stole that idea from him before he could patent it and that person now is reaping the royalties of rewards because every road in America has those little road bumps on it. So even though his grandfather had the big picture idea and could have been a millionaire somebody else reaped the benefits of all his hard work. Vanity my friends vanity. If you are hoping to find meaning and identity in your work and in your efforts, then there's much heartache on the horizon for you. Solomon's frustration with labor caused him to view it with a hatred. Now this is really interesting here and I want us to really focus on this for a little bit. He says, I hated all my toil. It's not that it became just meaningless and neutral or not useful, he begins to hate it. We should take a very serious look at what is happening in the heart of this preacher through these various ups and downs that he's experiencing and recognize that there's a a really important warning to be heeded in all of this. We may very well come to hate the good thing that we have wrongly expected to fulfill our desires and to give us meaning and purpose in life. We may come to hate that thing. In these verses, we're focusing on on labor. The preacher invested his heart in all of his hard works and all these great projects he wanted to accomplish hoping that they would satisfy him, hoping that he would find meaning in it and it would give peace to his soul. He expected more of his labors than his labors could ever really provide for him. And so his heart began to grow calloused toward his labors. As his labors began to let him down, this labor which was not bad in and of itself became like an enemy to him because it had failed so miserably miserably to provide the things that he longed for the most unrealistic expectations can lead to grave bitterness in heart. When we deify mortal things, when we exalt things that should not be exalted, when we expect them to give us only what God can give to us, we have begun to treat mortal things as an idol. We have begun to give them the kind of affection and the kind of allegiance that is only reserved for God the Father. And in doing so, we guarantee that we will eventually feel great disappointment in these things because nothing can satisfy us like God can. Nothing can fill that void in our heart. When we ask something that is less than God to do for us what only God can do, we cannot help but feel serious disappointment when our expectations are never met. Consider, then, the danger, friends, in deifying, in treating something like an idol, that is supposed to be good but not first in your life. Consider then the danger of deifying your marriage or deifying your children or thinking about your church in ways that you shouldn't think about your church. When they prove their fallibility, we might very well come to hate them as well. This is a sad condition of heart and it is unfortunately so, so common in the world today. Too many marriages have come to a tragic end. And I don't use that term tragedy lightly. They have come to a tragic end. The covenant of marriage is a divine gift of God and it is heartbreaking to God when divorce divides people in His church. Too many marriages have come to a tragic end when one or both parties have allowed their love for their spouse to eclipse their love for God. Listen carefully to this. That husband, that wife, becomes the center of their universe And all of their joy and victory and contentment and peace is wrapped up precariously in that fragile human form. This human being who has faults, who makes mistakes, who is not always thinking about their spouse's well-being, is expected to provide all of the most important things for their spouse, and they just can't live up to it. And so people cry out against one another, He doesn't love me with the sensitivity that I need. Well, she doesn't respect me for all the hard work and effort that I put into providing for this family. Well, he doesn't make me feel beautiful and valuable like he used to. Well, she doesn't, she doesn't appreciate me. She takes me for granted and expects me to meet all of her needs. I can't take this pressure anymore. I'm tired of always being a disappointment to you. This just isn't working out. I didn't sign up for this. Too many times, that is the cry of an embittered couple who has expected more of their spouse than they ever should have. The joy that they're supposed to be getting from God alone, they have demanded from this human being who is fallible just like them. These words are far too common. One of the most important ways that you can protect your spouse, you can protect your kids and your job, the ways that you can protect your view of your government, you can protect your boss, you can protect your pastors, is by thinking rightly about them not giving them more affection than they deserve rightly in your life. Keep them in the right place in your heart and don't let them push Jesus off the throne so that they can take that place of worship and exaltation. In verse 23, we see what can happen when we fail to do that. For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. Now this translation, full of sorrow, is not as forceful as it really should be when you look back at the original Hebrew text. The Hebrew doesn't say that he was sorry. It doesn't say that he was sorrowful or that his days were full of sorrow. It says that his days were literally the noun sorrow. His days were sorrow. Meaning that this idea of sorrow and and sadness dominated every aspect of his days. Solomon has been betrayed by his own efforts. He thought... His labors would ease the longing in his heart, but all they did was make his inability to please himself all the more obvious to him and all the more painful. This betrayal has obviously depressed him. The utter despair of not being able to satisfy the heart with the things of the world tends to have a sabotaging effect on the things that we used to enjoy in life. And so Solomon says here in verse 19 that it even followed him into bed. In the the one time of the day when he should be able to just turn it off and relax and rest, these things are still running through his mind. He cannot stop thinking of them and thinking about his weakness, that he cannot satisfy himself. We get there, don't we? We've experienced that ourselves. In some ways, I want us to think differently about that kind of frustration. Frustration. Because, in some ways, that dissatisfaction that we eventually encounter with the graven things of this world is one of God's greatest gifts to us. That unhappiness we find with the things that we have purchased, that dissatisfaction we found in our jobs, that that incomplete feeling that we have with our relationships with other people, it is a blessing to us because it points us to the greatest good. To the one source of true fulfillment and happiness. Had we settled for our labors, if we were just able to convince ourselves that our jobs were enough and this is what I'm living for, I'm living for this job, and as long as I do my best and advance in this company and I get to that position of boss and I can die a happy man, if that is enough for us, if we lie to ourselves and convince ourselves that that should satisfy us, then we might never taste the great wonder of knowing God and giving Him our everything. Praise His name that we grow bored of that which can never amount to Him. Think about that, church. May that boredom, may that dissatisfaction and that discontent with worldly things, even in good worldly things, may it drive us to Jesus, the only true source of comfort and peace in our lives. That dissatisfaction can lead us to repentance, friends, as we consider the superior kindness that we are shown in the beloved God and we realize, I've been treating the things of my life like idols. I have been giving them more glory than they deserve. I have been treating them with a the kind of love that they have not earned. My love belongs on Christ. Our dissatisfaction towards the things that cannot satisfy us can be, as Pastor Charles Bridges, a wonderful man who writes some great things about Ecclesiastes, he calls it our Father's restoring discipline when we feel this way, when we are dissatisfied with life listen to this wonderful prayer that he penned in response to the very verses that we're studying today he writes "O my god may I feel the vanity of everything that turns away my heart from thee we must have an anchor somewhere and we sought it in the creature because we knew not where else to look for it but when we have once gained an everlasting footing on unchangeable covenant better promises higher privileges, richer prospects, and fix our hearts and give us peace, not as the world giveth. And what does John John 14 go on to tell us about that? It says that God offers us a peace that surpasses all understanding, doesn't it? A peace that goes beyond our wisdom and what we can know or not know. What else in this world can offer us what the gospel of grace offers us, friends? Every other source of happiness begs to be earned. Our salvation is in no way earned by our efforts. It's completely different than the prizes that this world has to offer. God comes to us and says, you're my enemy. You have did dishonor to the name of your creator. You have not borne my image well. You deserve destruction. And yet I'm going to give you a new life in my Son, Jesus Christ. Through His tremendous suffering, through His great and mighty work of obedience to every single law, I'm going to give you a pathway to glory. God gives us something that we could never earn, which is so different than the treasures of this earth that moth and rust destroy. Every other source of happiness addresses symptoms, but not the root cause. The eternity that is in our heart, the eternity that we long to be quenched, is only quenched in a right relationship with God, with the one who has made us. The eternal Father who reigns forever and invites us into a permanent family that has lasting value. And every other source of happiness must be renewed day by day. Everything that this world has to offer you is going to run itself out, is going to run its course. You're going to have to replace it with something newer and better and more modern, but the love of Christ endures forever. It is sufficient. His sacrifice conquers every sin, and it needs never be repeated. So friends, don't despise work. Labor is a good thing. It is really a gift from the Lord God. In fact, J.C. Ryle, in the book that I'm giving to the guys today, Happiness, says, The most miserable creature on earth is the man who has nothing to do. Work of the hands or work for the head is absolutely essential to human happiness. Without it, the mind feeds upon itself, and the whole inward man becomes diseased. The machinery within continues to work, but without something to work upon, it can wear itself to pieces. So work itself is not bad. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the answer to this downfall in labor, the answer to the weakness and toil and strife, is not to do nothing. We should enjoy work. We should work hard. We should earn good things by our work. But do not, do not allow your hard work to become your hope for purpose. The labor that should matter the most to us should never be our own. It should rather be the work that Christ labored through in order to redeem us from our sin. His work is greater, and we could never hope to rival it. He left exaltation to take on the task of this work. Though He was in heaven, safe and secure, lacking nothing for our sakes, He left the beauty of heaven and humbled Himself to take on human flesh, to live in a spoiled creation, among sinners, among people who would revile him and spit at him and mock him and in every way try to make him stumble. He left perfection to come dwell with imperfection like us. And though he was here among us, he was never defiled by us. This Jesus rejected every opportunity to sin so that when the time was right, he would be ready for the great work prepared for him. A sinner could never do what Jesus did on the cross. Every other man owed a debt to God he needed to pay with his own blood. But Jesus, owing no debt, gave perfect blood to wash away our sin. He paid the personal price, and he paid it in shame. Though he deserves exaltation, he was willing to become a curse for us so that the curse of sin might be lifted from us once and for all. Friends, if your labors have left you unsatisfied, look to Christ's work for your peace. Look to Christ's work knowing that you can enter the heavenly kingdom and you can enter it with empty hands without anything to show for your own efforts because your own efforts are vanity. But the efforts of God's Son are everything. And if you have trusted in Him, His righteousness has been put onto you. I want to close with the words of Isaiah 55, 1-3, through 3, which I feel really sums up this, this heart set, this mindset Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come. Buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, for lab- in your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Praise God for that new covenant, which belongs to his church, which his church is blessed by, through which we can experience great relief from the endless toils of life on earth. Would you bow your heads with me as we close in a word of prayer?